turn our attention now to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And I really promise I didn't pick this passage for any particular reason. It's not like Dave and I were talking and, you know, there's a reason why I picked this particular passage. Actually, I picked this passage because it's a passage God's been putting upon my heart as a, as a minister of the gospel, as one who, who battles in my own heart with the very things that I believe the Corinthian church was battling as well. And I pray that it would encourage you as it has encouraged my heart as God has laid this upon, upon my, my heart and my mind. <clears throat> so this is the reading of God's word from Paul. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his work. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's building. God's building. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we ask that you would come now and that you would speak through this weak messenger, that you would show your strength and your power and your might as you open your word to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your spirit is our teacher. We thank you that you are in our midst and we can rest assured in who you are. And we thank you that we can even, Lord, resign as general managers of the universe. For Lord, you're awesome at what you do and you are worthy of our trust. It's in Jesus' name we ask all these things and God's people said, Amen. What's your reaction when somebody says, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news? Most of us don't say, let me, let me have the good news first. We want to get the bad news out of the way, right? We want to get the bad news out of the way because then the good news is really good, right? Well, <clears throat> sometimes the good news becomes old news to us and, and news that doesn't really affect us. So reminders of the bad news actually Help the good news actually be good news. All right, I could say that 16 times in different ways and we would start to get cross-eyed. But what I want us to understand is that we, we encounter trials and, and sufferings and deal with conflict in our families, in our churches. And when things are just going well and we're just cruising along, we take for granted the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as it seems Though we can grow cool toward the things of God, and God himself even seems to get smaller. But the trouble is not in God getting smaller. He doesn't do that. But it's other things getting bigger in our hearts and minds. God's workshop of making his people more like himself actually involves throwing a wrench in the cogs of the status quo. Yes, he does not want us to have other things 
get in the way of him and be put in his place. He uses our sin even. This is amazing. Think about this. He uses our sin and the sins of others even to awaken us from our spiritual sleepiness and and laziness and boring belief to show us again the bad news, why he came to save sinners. Why? So we may be reminded of where we are to look, where we are to turn for help and hope each and every moment, and to see the good news of the gospel afresh. He does all that, ultimately, that we may believe in him as a big God. The wilderness experience of Israel, it's not unlike the wilderness experience of the church where he's testing our faith, ultimately seeking to grow us in our faith in him. In this passage this morning, Paul takes us through the bad news of our sin to the good news of our great God to help us regain our belief in a big God and to turn from false trust in ourselves and others. He shows us in this passage what believing in a big God involves three things. First, trusting in the paucity of the flesh, the smallness of the flesh. You learn a new vocabulary word and a memory verse, so... Paucity is is the new vocabulary word today. And so secondly, trusting in the sovereignty of God and then trusting in the identity God gives to us. So let's explore what believing in a big God involves from this passage. First, we must trust in the paucity of the flesh, smallness. That's what paucity means, the smallness or littleness. It's from the Latin word there. Contrasted with the bigness of God. So I'm going to help us understand this. Paul addressed his audience as people of the flesh, not as spiritual people, but as infants in Christ. Man, ouch. How would you like that if somebody called you a a baby in Christ? Not spiritual people. You're you're, you're acting in the flesh. Well, this this isn't a put-down, spiritually speaking. He's just called them brothers. They are believers. But the problem is, that they have been acting as people of the flesh. They've been acting in the flesh. They've been acting as babies, like they don't truly understand the gospel. And we do this too. They've been guilty of jealousy and strife in their ranks. These are the same Christians who actually heard earlier in Paul's letter to them how Paul gave thanks to God for them because of the grace of God given to them in Jesus Christ. In every way that they were enriched in all speech and knowledge, even in the testimony about Christ, was confirmed among them. And yet there was also quarreling among them. And he appealed to them by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that they agree and be united in the same mind and of the same judgment and not have divisions among them. Paul humbled them by pointing to Christ as the power and wisdom of God and reminded them of their calling, that they weren't the wise ones. They weren't the powerful ones, not of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Chose what is low and despised in the world to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul told them he did not come proclaiming to them the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He himself actually lowered himself to such a place where he said, I came to you in weakness in fear and trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power so that their faith might rest 
in the, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the context of his rebuke of these believers. Contrary to believing that they were the big men or women on campus, they needed to be put in their place and addressed as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, so that they would believe just how small they were really acting. Paul's telling us that we diminish who we are and what God has done in us when we live in the flesh. Why do we do this? Why do we make ourselves big in our own eyes? Well, it's because we're not wanting to make God big in them. We put ourselves or something else in the place of God. The Corinthians were saying, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Cephas or Peter. I follow Apollos. Like two kids arguing about whose dad could beat up the other kid's dad. That's, that was big when I was little. Big when I was little. That was funny. <clears throat> I mean, seriously, my, my friends and I would be like, man, my dad could beat up your dad. What? So what? That's dumb. This is stupid. It's just ridiculous. My dad was pretty strong. He's a big guy. 13 years old, 6'3", farm boy. But uh, anyways, I, it was silly, right? <clears throat> so in counseling circles, I often say, in, in couples dealing with conflict, I say, you know, listen, if I win, then we lose. If I win, then we lose. Why is that important here? But to believe in a big God, we must be believing in just how small we are when merely natural men and women acting in the flesh, when we're acting just merely human, not as those who are in Christ, not as those who have been brought to life in Jesus Christ, if we're all about us, then we lose. If we're all about ourselves, we must despair of seeing our hearts make so much of ourselves that, that we're a big deal. For this is why Christ came to die to give us redemption and resurrection life, because we are nothing. And we're dead in our transgressions and sins. We were just flesh bots, literally just living in the flesh, doing what pleased ourselves. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We followed the course of the world and we followed the desires of our flesh. We were dead. And aren't we glad for that but God that Paul gives there in Ephesians 2? Who's rich in mercy actually made us alive together with Christ. I've been reading Deeper by Dane Ortland. It's the sequel... I guess, for the gentle and lowly book. Dane tells us in this book something Jesus, Paul, Luther, John Owen, many others have said elsewhere. If you plunge down only a little into self-despair over your sin, you will rise only a little into joyous growth in Christ. He then quotes J.I. Packer who said, the index of the soundness of a man's faith in Christ is the genuineness of the self-despair from which it springs. What's the self-despair we're talking about? It's your awareness of the smallness of your flesh. It's the awareness of how small and insignificant you are apart from Christ. That you are nothing without Him. We need to feel the sting of our own sinfulness and the weight of the despair of it. <clears throat> we must really trust in the paucity of the flesh and not rely upon the flesh at all. Believing to be a big God begins with making sure we believe in the smallness of our natural state so we don't 
make choices to live in it any longer. Enough is enough, right? Since we have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. That's not just the cry of Paul who's filled with the Holy Spirit and inspired and wanting to give us something good. That's the cry of all of us who are believers in Christ. Thank you for the amen corner. I like that. (laughs) Secondly, believing in a big God involves trusting in the sovereignty of God. This is a tough one. This is one I've been wrestling with the past five years of planting in Scottsboro. Do I really trust in a God who is sovereign? Yeah, I believe he's sovereign in salvation, that he's the one that has to do the work. But do I really trust he can do something from nothing? Is, can I really trust him that he's going to do something from nothing with this goof off, this goofball? How in the world can he do this? Because he's awesome and he's big in all things. He is sovereign in every way, shape, or form that we can imagine. He is over all things. He reigns and rules and overrules over all things. God's sovereignty is his reign and rule and his high and holy character. He is that kind of God who is that high and holy that whatever he does is perfect and whatever he does is overarching everything else in all of creation. Sovereignty is about God's centrality and God's glory above all else. So trusting God's sovereignty in this instance is seeing things through God's perspective as it is the highest and best perspective. And so we get this in his holy word. We see God's sovereignty here in God's word as Paul says by the Spirit. What is Apollos? What is Paul? What is Cephas? What is Peter? These men are just servants of the Most High. God's ministers through whom these Corinthians Believers actually came to believe in the gospel. They're just men, yet sovereignly moved, sovereignly called, sovereignly ordained to bring the message of the gospel to these dark places, these dead people. That's the kind of sovereign God we have. And what did they do? As the Lord assigned to each of them, they did their thing. They planted and they watered. And who made the increase? God. It's about the big God whose sovereignty we see in these things, like He who He puts in our, like those who put He puts in our path to minister to us and care for us, to come around us maybe and minister to us within the church. Have you had a had a need in the church and had people meet your need and you're like, oh man, thank you, God. That was God's sovereignty. That wasn't like just a coincidence or quinky dink as we used to call it. God is sovereign. He's a big God. He's an awesome God. He doesn't just sovereignly ordain the the ends of things and the outcomes. He's working through all the little details and minutia that we don't see. That's how awesome he is. His sovereign fingertips touch everything. So we must trust God's sovereignty in this way. Paul tells them and us in verses 6 and 7, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Do you hear the humility there? 
He, he, he gets it. He's trusting in the sovereignty of God. And that's what we need to do too. He's not really saying, Paul, I'm nothing. Apollos is nothing. He's not putting them down. He's saying in comparison, we are nothing compared to our sovereign God. God is the one who calls and equips and does his good work in and through us, his people. And verse 8 demonstrates that part of the trusting in the sovereignty of God is acknowledging Paul and Apollos, or you and I for that matter, that we are one. That we are actually one. Did you hear that? Trusting the sovereignty of God is seeing God not as partial to one servant over the other. Do you ever get that way? God, I think you like that Christian brother or sister better than you like me. I know I deal with that. I, I struggle with that. You know, why would you like me? You know, that person's just got a lot more that's more likable or whatever. I, I struggle with that. Just being honest. But God is not partial. We are united to one another and valuable in God's eyes. And we are all equally important to him. Trusting the sovereignty of God is also the sense of accountability that as we are servants of the living God and the sovereign God, we will all receive wages according to the labor he gives to us. He will reward his servants as he sees fit, not on terms that we create. Some of us he gives ten talents, some of us five, right? Some of us one. But we want to be faithful with what he gives us. Believing the big God involves trusting God's sovereignty. Finally involves trusting in the identity God gives to us. Verse 9. What does the flesh say that we are? Boy, we could spend all afternoon talking about what the flesh says that we are. But it actually lies to us, doesn't it? And says we're actually autonomous. We kind of can choose our own way and do our own thing. And we are self-sufficient. We are to make it happen for ourselves. That's the lie of the flesh. These are the lies within the devil's words, even in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? See, the devil's age-old deception there is continuing to be present today, even within our flesh. Did God really say that? No, he didn't really say that. You don't have to think about that. The way forward in believing the big God, though, is relying upon the Word of God as our source of our identity. I want to stop here and say, young people, it's really important for you to remember that your identity is not to be found in sports or academics or what the people around you say or what the popular people say about you. If you are on a search for your identity, don't look any further than what the Word of God says about you whether about your sin nature and your need for a Savior and who Christ says that you are. Apart from that, you will be searching your whole life if you're trying to find your identity in anything horizontal. Does that make sense? But that goes for all of us. There's people in here probably who are 70, 80 years old who said, I'm just, trying to, I'm just now getting who I am in Jesus Christ. I'm just now getting this. I mean, I'm 47, y'all. And I'm going, okay, Lord, why does this feel like I'm, I'm just now getting this? Because we've got to hammer it in our head because the world is, is catechizing us. Culture is catechizing us. It's pushing its agenda upon us. It's pushing the lies that we're autonomous and self-sufficient. It's pushing the lie that God doesn't exist and you don't need a Savior. You don't need a Lord. And that's all 
a lie. It's a huge lie. Paul says we are God's fellow workers. Man, that's, that's heavy. Think about that for a minute. He's speaking of himself and Apollos specifically, but this could be applied to all believers since there's a priesthood of believers, right? Now that we are in Christ, God has brought us into union with himself in Christ Jesus, but also into his mission that he's about. Whoa. That is why we are called commissioners of the great commission that Jesus gave. It's the great commission because together with Jesus, we are on mission to make disciples you know, of all nations. We are in union with himself to be in union with him and on his mission. What a privilege that we are swept up by his powerful grace and mercy to no longer be about ourselves and our divisions and fights and stupid my dad can beat up your dad stuff, but to be about his work and seeing him uniting sinners to himself, bringing peace to them and between them. Our big God calls us to himself to be part of something more grand than we could ever come up with on our own. The body of Christ where we, are, <clears throat> where we as members join to Christ and one another do our part together and in this do greater works than Christ did when he was here. I know that's hard for us to, to fathom because we're like, well, man, I'm not raising the dead. Anybody raising the dead around here at Grace and Fort Payne? But guess what? How many people are coming to Jesus Christ around this community through the work that we're doing? Now, you might say, well, I don't, I don't know. I can't see the fruit. One day we will. One day we'll see that fruit. But the church of Jesus Christ spread throughout this whole world, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The last 150, 200 years, the, 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 the momentum of people coming to know Jesus Christ and going deeper in their relationship with him is incredible. It's astronomical. It's exponential. It really is amazing. If you look at the missiological numbers, it is almost like God has opened the floodgates and the kingdom has expanded in the last 150, 200 years in amazing ways. <clears throat> so Jesus was simply doing his thing at one place at one time, but he's called us in all places throughout time to continuing his work of proclaiming the gospel. And we've lost sight of that today. We've forgotten our identity that we are the church of Jesus Christ, commissioners of Christ. We've made the church about me. Well, I better go look good, and I better go and, and sit there and make sure everybody sees me <clears throat> and make sure I, I get what I can out of church. Now, forgive me, okay, and humor me a little bit. Why do we come here? Why do we go to church? It's not for me. It's for him. It's for his glory. It's for the glory and the good of the church. It's not about, well, what can I get out of church today? I mean, I had a guy in Scottsboro actually tell me, I, I, I'm kind of considering not going to church anymore because I'm sick and tired of sitting around people that I know the kind of junk they're doing on Friday and Saturday. And I'm thinking to myself, you're missing it, dude. You're missing it. We've made church about me or I. We've made our mission really to get from God and church what we want. We've got a consumer mentality, unfortunately. 
And that's great and greatly weakened the church's effectiveness and witness. I guess I'm moving around so much, I moved that pad there. We must repent of our not trusting in the identity that God has given us in his word about who we are. We must keep before us his word and hold fast to what he says about us. For the world, the flesh, and the devil is saying plenty. I know some of you, well, I call it the itty-bitty pity committee inside your head. It's loud. How do you combat that? you got to get in the Word. you got to be praying the Scriptures. You've got to be fellowshipping with other believers. You've got to be doing that which is going to build up your faith and give you this God perspective, right? This sovereignty perspective, this sense of identity that apart from Him, God, I, I am not going to be trying to find my identity in you. But I want you to grasp today and this morning, we are on the same team with our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our team captain, our head. We are equals with one another, rightly related with one another in Jesus Christ. That's awesome. We're brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're forever forever family. And I know family is very important, but this is forever family, okay? Okay. I don't think in heaven I'm going to come up to my mom and be like, Mom, and, and that's going to be the best relationship. I think it's going to be, Mom, Dave, Callum, Estes. It's going to be amazing because we're family. We're forever family. Paul says you are God's field. It may not be striking to you that Paul calls us this, it's kind of like being called a she-goat in the Song of Solomon or something like that. You know, or you're going, oh, that's not very flattering. But you are God's field. Think about this for a minute. Consider being the possession of the Lord. That God has bought you. He's redeemed you. And he's cultivating and he's planting and he's watering and he's growing all that he has grafted into Jesus Christ. The true vine. That we might bear much fruit. Isn't that a great thought? We believers in Jesus Christ are the planting of the Lord. Transplants into his kingdom of light from the domain of darkness. You might not feel like an oak of righteousness. It doesn't matter what you feel. That's the committee. Don't listen to the committee. Listen to the word of God. You are the planting of the Lord, believer. So that there may be a harvest of righteousness, not only in your lives, but around you. As you impact others with the gospel of Jesus Christ, where not only you're becoming like him, but you're actually seeing others become like him. So we must trust in the identity he gives us in his word. Paul says we're God's building. Might not be striking to you that Paul calls us this, but consider once again, God's building. We are the building of the Lord, where he puts us together with others in such a way that it's for the best of everyone and accomplishes not our purposes, but his. And we're all built upon that chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And we are living stones that he's putting together into this house that we cannot even fathom what it's going to look like. It's his doing from start to finish, right? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus Jesus has given us incredible grace that we would be the building of the Lord that demonstrates to the world that there's another kingdom, a better kingdom, a kingdom whose city is representative from all kinds of people from all over the world that is ever growing and expanding 
growing in knowledge of the Lord Jesus and the grace of the Lord Jesus, proclaiming his glory throughout the world. Folks, we're not here to make our own kingdoms. Only to watch those fall and disappear, but actually we've been swept into a grand scheme, a grand drama, if you will, of redemption. To become the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, the city of God. My closing illustration is this. My wife bought a a painting from Kirkland's that you could probably see in Kirkland's if you go in there today. But I hung it at my pregnancy center, executive director office, because it's a picture of a boat on the water. And one day I was just meditating upon some scriptures, and the Lord just put on my heart just thinking about Peter and how the Lord said, Come to me, Peter. And Peter came out of the boat, walked on the water. In spite of what all was going on around him, he was able to look to Jesus and walk out to that boat, uh, walk out to the Lord, get out of that boat of security, and come to Jesus to the amazement of his fellow disciples. I mean, surely they're thinking, and if anybody's going to probably waver and fall in, it might be Peter. But <clears throat> they were just not brave enough to go probably first themselves. Peter was always one wanting to be first, I think. But nonetheless, what happened when he stopped looking at Jesus? He began to sink. He began to fret and get worried. And they had to pull him into the boat. You see, God is calling all of us to follow him. And to follow him to get out of the boat. Are we going to get out of the boat and look to Jesus, and continue to fix our eyes upon him, not trust our our flesh, trust in his sovereignty, trust in the identity that he says that we are. You know, amazing things happen when we get out of the boat and we fix our eyes upon Jesus. I've seen that in Scottsboro. Five years ago, I never would have imagined having a building that people meet at for worship on Sunday nights. I didn't think that was going to happen this fast. Is it as big as I would like it to be? No. But it is what God wants it to be. He's sovereign in that. But see, when we get out of the boat, when we get out of our comfort zone and our familiar place and what's easy and safe, and we really rest and trust and lean and rely upon him, man, amazing things happen. Where is God calling you right now to get out of the boat? Where is he calling you to stop trusting the flesh? Trust him in his sovereignty. Trust in the identity that he has given to us. (coughs) We don't need to look any longer within ourselves. We don't need to look to the left or the right. I'm losing my voice up here. We need to get out of the boat and fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, let me, let me pray for us. Father, looks like I've given all that I can. Thank you for this word. We ask that you would use it for your people to strengthen them and encourage them. We pray that you would work in and through us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.